Hey, my name's Caleb, and I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and we're so thankful that you clicked on this video. We really pray that it benefits you, it grows your faith, or maybe introduces you to Jesus in a way that you've never been introduced before. But what we also want for you is to be connected to a local congregation. So if Cross of Life is your home congregation, we're glad that you make use of these resources, but make sure that this never comes in the place of coming together for worship with the body of believers. Let's be a church that values in-person gathering when so much of life is digital. And if you're somebody who's not from Mississauga, uh, get in touch with the local church in your area. It can be so easy to pick and choose, oh, I like this preacher or I like this message, but never actually invest in the place that Jesus says that he is, in his body, the church. And we encourage you to take time to put yourself into his body, in a local congregation, so that you can pray for one another, love one another, support one another, forgive one another, do all the things that the scripture talks about for one another. So we hope you're blessed by this video, and we hope that we get the chance to see you in person sometime soon. Well, good morning again, everyone. For those of you who haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Caleb, and I'm the pastor here. We are in part three of our Advent sermon series called The King Shall Come. And like I mentioned at the beginning of our service, the Advent series, The King Shall Come, is using the first coming of Jesus as a springboard to talk about the second coming of Jesus. And uh, I was thinking about this because I figured there would be a number of you who would be here for the children's program who are not uh, regular attenders at Cross of Life, so I figured I wanted to address you guys right away because I think there's going to be some things that if I don't explain them, you might say, what on earth is going on there? Um, The first thing is to understand that we've been talking about God's picture of the end of the world for the last couple weeks. So we're glad that you're here. We love it. You're stepping into something that's already been going on. And so if something doesn't make sense to you today, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first two sermons in this series. You can do that on our website, which is crossoflife.net, and you'll be able to find the sermons there. You can also find a podcast version on your favorite podcasting app if you like to listen to podcasts. The second thing I want to say is we're talking about the end of the world, and I think at some level that's like a trope of like churches. (laughs) Like they're always talking about the end of the world and how you need to repent, and that's true enough. I want you to realize that, first of all, there's so much more to God's word than just talking about the end of the world. However, we do talk about the end of the world because everyone talks about the end of the world. You may not realize it, but even if you don't call yourself a Christian, you have an end of the world idea. You have a a sense of what the end of the world is going to be like, and you live according to that plan. You might think that it's the climate apocalypse, you might think that it's social upheaval or the fall of Western civilization or some nation that's going to attack another nation, or you might think just nothing is going to happen and life is going to keep going on until the death of the sun when all the people die. Like, whatever it is, you have a story that you tell yourself about how this whole thing is going to end and you live according to it. So what I'm gonna challenge you to do today as we consider God's word is to ask yourself, what gives you certainty in your idea of the end of the world over against the certainty that we have from the man who said, I'm God and I'm going to prove it by dying and rising again, and then he did it, and then told us how the end of the world is going to come. Today we're gonna get really practical. Having looked in week one at how Jesus is going to come, finding out that he is going to come with all knowledge to work out all things for our good and to deliver us from all death and sin and evil that is in this world, and in week two, seeing how we ought to prepare for that coming with repentance, We're going to look now at what it practically means to wait. 
Maybe you know this, uh, if you're getting ready for a Christmas party to have some people over, there are the preparations, of course, that you make, and then maybe this happens where you're like prepared a little bit early. Maybe that happens to none of you, but sometimes it happens where you're prepared a little bit early and the people haven't come, and then what do you do? Maybe you go double check on some stuff, you, you make sure you keep the crock pot at low so that the food is warm, whatever it is, you, you do something to wait for them to come because you don't know exactly when they're going to come. What do we do as Christians? If we have prepared our heart for the coming of Jesus and he's not here yet, which he's not, how do we wait? And to talk about how we are supposed to wait, we're going to see three things in the text that we're going to study from 1 Thessalonians. We're going to see that we wait for Jesus by thinking about our work, our workers, and our worship. And if you grab a note sheet uh, on the way in, you'll see that those are the three points. However, if you're a regular attender at Cross of Life, you'll notice that the note sheets are a little bit different today, and that's because I just gave you the text of the Bible on your note sheet with a lot of extra space. Because we're going to cover a lot of ground today, and we are going to, um, we're going to do it pretty quickly. My hope is that you pick out a few things, and you circle, or you underline, or you write something in the margin to help you take home this text for the rest of your week. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 5 is the text. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to work through it as we go. The first point that we're looking at is work. The Apostle Paul starts writing to the Thessalonians by saying, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Apostle Paul starts by saying, Guys, there's nothing for me to tell you about when the end of the world is going to come, right? He says about these times and dates, these things that people say are the markers of the end of the world, I don't need to write to you about that because they are nothing. There are no signs that the end of the world is coming soon. A lot of people believe this, whether they have a Christian worldview or a non-Christian worldview, there are things that are marking that this is going to be the end soon. There are an increase in wars or there is an increase in violence in the streets. There maybe is a decrease in Christianity, some Christian denominations will say, that's a sign of the end of the world coming. And the Apostle Paul says, nope, none of it is a sign. Nobody knows. In fact, Jesus himself, while he was walking on earth, said, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, not even him. Only the Father knows. God tells us that we ought to be ready like you're ready for a thief, which we're never ready for a thief, right? Like when a thief comes in the night, we're not ready for it. We don't plan it. We don't ask him when he's going to show up. He just shows up and does what he does. There's no way for us to identify the coming of the end of the world. We just have to say it's going to come sometime. And so Paul gives us an instruction. He says that we are not to be like those who say peace and safety during this time. He says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul says, because we don't know when the end of the world is coming, we ought to not act like everything's okay. To say peace and safety. We ought to expect that this is going to come upon us suddenly when we least expect it. Now you might say, Okay, but as I look out at the world, I don't see a whole lot of people saying peace and safety right now. Right? I actually see a whole lot of people panicking about a whole lot of stuff. It's because Trudeau, or because Trump, or because China, or because Russia, or because economy, or because climate change, or because whatever. Like, no peace and safety. Everybody should run with like, chickens with their heads cut off. That's what I'm hearing a lot out there. How can people be saying peace and safety? Well, I think Paul actually means something deeper than that. He, He's not saying that we're going to look out at the world around us and say, oh, everything is good. 
but that we're going to look at God and say, everything is good. That we're going to look at God and say, you know what? Me and God, we're cool. Maybe we're cool because I think I'm a good enough person for him, or maybe we're cool because I don't even really believe in him. Paul says, destruction will come on you suddenly. For those of you who would not profess to be a Christian, maybe, this is an important thing to consider. Not just because of the threat of destruction, I would actually say because of the opposite. That what we're going to find out later in the text is that God's promise is that for those who believe in him on that last day when Jesus shows up like a thief in the night, he will give you eternal salvation. And you might say, I I don't really want that, I'm not out of time for that, I don't believe in that. I would ask you, have you really considered it? Have you really dug into it? Because thousands of years of human history have proven that people have believed this, found immense peace in it, that it has transcended cultures, it has transcended time. Even if you don't believe it, give it the respect of at least considering that literally billions of people have believed this. And they believed it not because they're morons, but because they found truth in it. But then I think of those of us who maybe are Christians, we consider ourselves Christians, and how often do we think that my relationship with God, me and God, we're fine. Of course you are fine in the gospel, that is true. Christ has baptized you, you are saved, but how often do we use that as a license to not care? To push aside our responsibility to love our neighbor. To push aside our responsibility to come back to God's word in repentance. You know, I think the picture that Paul gives us here of a pregnant woman is so helpful. Like when you're pregnant, you know that the day is coming. You don't know when it's coming, but you know that it is coming, and so you prepare. I've had a pregnant wife a couple times. Some of you have been pregnant. You know that there are a number of things you do as you prepare for that baby to come. Because you realize that while it might feel okay right now, there is going to be a time when it is not going to feel okay, and you're going to want everything else in your life aligned for that moment. Paul says the same thing. It might feel okay right now, and people might tell you it's okay right now. And in some temporal sense, it might be okay right now. But someday it won't be. I think about it like the fire alarm in my house. So we have a fire alarm in our house, and it is inconsistent, which is really dangerous. And if any of you want to help me out, please. Um, it, but it works sometimes, and it doesn't work sometimes. And the odds are I'm going to go home to my house after church today, and my house is still going to be standing and not burned down to the ground. But it is a foolish risk to not take care of that because the stakes are so high. For your eternal life or your eternal death, the stakes are even higher. Why not say, maybe... I need to consider how God feels about the life that I'm living. So Paul says that we cannot be like that. He says, brothers and sisters, you are not in the darkness like this, but you are in the day so that that day should not surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to night or darkness. He says, if you are unaware of this coming of Jesus, if you live like it's not coming at all or you don't care that it's coming, you're like a person walking around at night. Uh, In the mornings on Sundays before I come to church, I practice my sermon on a walk outside. And you know it's getting to be about the darkest time of the year, and so I'm walking around in the dark in the morning, and there's other people on their walks, and I can't recognize their faces. I can't recognize the animals that that are running around. Like, I see them, but in some sense I don't. God says that to be aware of Christ, to look into Scripture and to know what he says, is to like, is to be like living in the day. To be able to see things and identify them for what they are. And that's who you are. You've heard Christ's word. You know the playbook. So then Paul encourages us. So then, let us not be like others. 
who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Paul says our way of looking at the world should not be metaphorically like those who are asleep or those who are drunk. Now he uses these two metaphors, and I think they're really helpful for us to consider what our life looks like as we live waiting for Jesus. What happens when you're asleep? You exist, you're alive, but you are completely unaware of everything around you because you have shut off, in some sense, your sensing mechanisms for the world around you. Many people live this way. They shut themselves off from the world. They shut themselves off from meaningful relationships. They shut themselves off from news of the outside world. They shut themselves off from caring about what's going on. They try to curate their little perfect life so that everything is right, so that they can just ignore the fact that the world is burning outside. They're alive. They exist. But they have closed themselves off to the reality of the world. When I read this, I think about the people that I see in passing in my life, whether it's with my hockey team or just walking through the grocery store, and I think to myself, how many of these people are just living ignorant to the fact that someday they will die? They don't think about it. They just closed themselves off to that thought. They just expect to keep living and expect to keep living, and, and someday they won't, like those who are asleep. The second metaphor is like those who are drunk. What's true when you're drunk? You exist, you're alive. In some sense, you're aware of what's going on, but you have completely distracted yourselves from the problems of your life. Like, let's say you you got some big bills to pay and you don't have the money in your checking account, and so you say, you know what, I don't want to think about this, I'm going to go off and drink myself silly. As you do that, are you going to be thinking about your bills? Nope. Are they still going to be there? Yes. A person who is drunk is distracting themselves into oblivion, distracting themselves away from the things that actually matter in their life. And how often do we do this? In fact, I think in some ways this is more common for our society. We don't want to deal with our life or our problems or the people in our lives, and so we distract ourselves away from those things. We turn on the TV, we turn on our phone, we turn on the podcast, we do whatever we can to distract ourselves from whatever's wrong with our life. I mean, consider this. You're going to sit here for another maybe 20 minutes or so and listen to me talk, preach at you from God's word, from his truth that is telling you to be awake and alive and aware of what is going on around you. And then how many of us are going to go home and turn on the TV for a couple hours or scroll on our phone for a couple hours and hear a preaching that is not preaching like we might think of it in a church, but a preaching that says, here's what you need to care about. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to buy. Here's what's wrong with the world. Here's who to blame. It's all preaching. We distract ourselves from the message of what is actually important. God is coming. The king shall come with all the other things. We fill our schedule with anything that will give us purpose or meaning rather than care about the one thing that actually matters for the rest of eternity. So Paul says that two unhealthy ways for us to wait for Jesus are to close ourselves off from the reality of the world or to distract ourselves away from it. But he says we can't be like that. We are different, right? We belong to the day, he says. So let us be sober. In other words, let us be aware of what's going on around us, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Two more metaphors. Let's talk about the hope of salvation first. When we talk about hope in English, we very often think of something I wish would happen, like I hope the rain's going to stop so we can have a nice Sunday. But hope in the Bible is different. Hope is better translated probably anticipation. To know that something is coming and to look forward to it. 
Like you see those presents under the tree and you know that they got your name on them and that you're going to open them soon. That's hope. And he says hope is like a helmet. Why? Because it lets you keep your head. You can lose your mind when you are, you are swimming in uncertainty, wondering what's going to happen next. Who's going to take care of this? How is this all going to work out? But a Christian can uniquely say, I have the certainty of knowing that the man who said he was God and proved it by coming back to life promises me that I will live forever. That all these things that are bothering me now, they will end. All the things that are sad will come untrue. God will undo all evil. Why would I worry about this so much? He also says that we have faith and love as a breastplate. A breastplate, of course, covers your internal organs, make sure that your body can continue to function, that you could be a blessing to other people. And your faith and your love do that. Because you know that you have been loved by God and have everything that you need in Christ already, that there is nothing left for you to strive for in this life. You are free to love and to live for the sake of others. To be generous with your time, with your energy, with your money, so that others can be loved in the same way you have been loved by God. God says you can protect your functioning body, in a sense, for the sake of others because of what you know is true in the gospel. And he says all of this is on the basis of the fact that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. This is in some way the linchpin of this text. It's like saying like, the reason to be awake, the reason to be alive, the reason to be aware of what's going on around you, to live a life of love for your neighbor, to live a life of certainty in the gospel is this. Christ did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. And that word receive is so powerful. It's the same word that you're going to enact when someone gives you a gift at Christmas. Did you pay them for that gift? Did you do something good in order to earn that gift? No, they just thought of you and they thought so highly of you that they gave you that gift. And you received it. The gospel is this. Christ loves you, not because you have been good to him or good to others, not because you have pulled it off in life or you've stopped failing, but because he loves you. He is generous to you. Every other worldview says the opposite. It says be attractive, be smart, be successful, be wealthy, be popular. The gospel says you don't need to be any of those things because you're already fully and completely loved in Jesus. God sees you and sees everything that he's ever wanted so that you can now be free from having to earn value for yourself and you can give it to others. And he did this whether you were awake or asleep. Isn't that amazing, that last phrase? He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. He has just said that being asleep is not the way that we ought to live. To be unaware of the world, to close ourselves off from the world, he says you shouldn't be that way, but guess what? The gospel is so powerful that even if you have been, he died for you. He's not waiting for you to wake up. The Bible says that while you were still a sinner, he died for you so that you could wake up so that you could take life as it is. This is the message of the gospel, friends, and it motivates the way we work as we wait for Jesus. Which brings us to the second point, our workers. Paul continues in verse 11 by saying, therefore, on the basis of everything I just said, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. 
What does he mean to encourage one another? Well, he's actually literally just said it only a couple sentences earlier. We didn't read it, but it's back in the last verse of chapter four, where he says this, therefore encourage one another with these words. He's written this whole chapter to his Christian friends about how Jesus is going to come at the end of the world and that it should not be a thing for us to fear. And so he says, go back to what I wrote and encourage one another with these words. The command for us is to go back to scripture and to encourage one another with the words of Scripture, to say this is the certain message of the one who has died and has come back to life. So you might ask yourself, well, how are we going to do that? Well, Paul says, by respecting those who work among you with the word. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now, this is one of those portions of the Bible that if it wasn't in the Bible, I probably would never say it to you because it's me talking about how you ought to treat me. The Bible is teaching about how you take care of your pastors. And so I want to say a couple things before I uh, go into this section. First of all, I am very blessed to be here and I love being here and you all treat me very well. So nothing that I say here should be interpreted as me passive aggressively telling you, you guys got to be nicer to me. Okay. I think also I'm, I'm saying this part of the text, well, first of all, because God said it, and that's my responsibility before him, but also because I hope I'm not the last pastor at Cross of Life. Like, I hope you have more pastors. I hope Cross of Life exists way past the time I'm dead and gone. And you're going to be served by those pastors. And I want you to treat them the way that God commands you to treat your pastors. And I also want to acknowledge that for those of you who are coming in who maybe aren't part of Cross of Life, you're like, wow, they're already talking about how you should give money to support the pastor. No, it's not what I'm talking about. In fact, I'm going to show you that that's not what I'm talking about right from the text. So let's look at what Paul says here. He says that, brothers and sisters, we ask that you acknowledge those who work hard among you. So he says to acknowledge them because they work hard among you. Uh, There's two things in this among you phrase that I think are worth considering. First of all, that you would have a pastor among you. In our society, where it's so easy to consume content through the internet, it is so easy to be pastored by somebody who is not among you. Or in our world that considers religiosity something that you can do without connection to an organized religious group, we feel that we don't need a pastor among us. And you can believe that you're free to, but not if you're a Christian. If you're going to read what the Bible says and be honest about it, it says your pastors will be among you. You'll be faithful to a local congregation where there is a man who is serving you with God's word. And secondly, like I said, you might do that. You might be part of Cross of Life or some other church and be faithful to the man whom God has called to be your pastor. But how quickly you can start to listen to other voices and let them functionally be your pastor. You can find your favorite YouTube preacher or podcast preacher, read those books that you really like without ever asking yourself, what does my pastor say about that? Not because he's your pastor, but because he is the one called to take care of you with God's word. Maybe to say it differently, the Bible talks about pastors like fathers. And as much as I might be able to do some of the functional things that a father would do for your children, your children are not my children. There's something missing there. I can only truly be a father to my children. And in the same way, I can only truly be a pastor to you who have asked me to be your pastor. Which means the inverse is true. Those out there who would preach God's word, who are not your pastor, they can do some of the functions of a pastor, but they are not your pastor. Acknowledge those who work hard among you. 
because they care for you in the Lord and they admonish you. My job, what God calls me to do, is to care about you, to care about every aspect of your life because God's word speaks to every aspect of your life, and I am trying my best. I repent for the times where I have not done it, but I'm trying. My wife will tell you that when something is going wrong in one of your lives, I carry it with me. I don't go off the clock. I kind of wish I could, but I love you too much. Like I, I obsess myself with making sure that God's word is there for you because I care about you. And that also means that I'll sometimes admonish you. Not because I need you to change, but because God wants you to change. To speak specifically to things in your life and say, that's not okay. God's not okay with that. And you might not like it because you might not like me, or you might think I'm too young, or you might think that I came at you in the wrong way. I apologize, but it's still my job, and it's still God's word. In fact, if you don't have a pastor who can get in your personal space and challenge you with God's word, you don't have a pastor. If what he says is mostly what you want to hear, he is not your pastor. He is a false teacher who is telling you what your itching ears want to hear. So Paul continues that if that is the case, then you ought to hold your pastors in the highest regard in love because of their work. This word highest regard is really interesting. It's the same word that Paul uses in another letter in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says about God that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In other words, the word highest regard is to say, I regard them without a limit. There's no upper end of how much I'm going to care about these people. And I don't know what that means. Like, the Bible doesn't tell us, it doesn't say that means pay him this much, or say this nice thing about him, or treat him this way. It just says, hold him in the highest regard. So I think that's going to be unique to each of you, and many of you do. It's very obvious to me that you hold me in a high regard, and I'm thankful for that. This is what God's word challenges us to do. So he says, hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Because they give God's word to you. Which I think is, is the thing that you want to focus on here. Like, if you're bothered by the idea that a pastor would say, hold me in the highest regard, I would just ask you to consider why God says to do that. Because of my work. Because of the importance of God's word. It's not about me. It's about what comes out of my mouth in line with God's word. And if you don't think God's word is that important, this is going to bother you. Because you're going to think it's my opinion. you got other preachers that you listen to. But if you think God's word is the most important thing and I am speaking God's word, then it won't be about me. It'll be about the fact that somebody got up and opened their mouth and God spoke through them. Hold your pastors in the highest regard in love because of their work. And you can do this in one way, that is by living at peace with each other. There is nothing that is more toxic to a pastor's life than conflict within a congregation. That is not to say that we should sweep our problems under the rug or we should never confront each other about sin. That is not what I'm saying. But there is a mature, there is a loving, there is a patient way to engage one another, to live in peace with one another. And many of you have been part of congregations or even this congregation at some times in its history where that has not been the case. I first want to praise you and say, I think it is the case right now. Like, I think we do live at peace with one another. I think we confront each other about our problems with love and peace, and that is a beautiful thing. Let's never lose that. Let's inculcate that culture. And anyone new who comes in here, that we're honest with each other, but we are honest in love because we value peace with one another. Paul continues, We urge you, brothers and sisters, then, that you would warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, and help the weak. 
Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So Paul says part of that living at peace is to warn those who are idle and disruptive. Idle and disruptive, two words in English, only one word in Greek, which is really interesting. The translators of the Greek New Testament said this word actually needs to be translated into two words because it's such a rich word. It's a word that means something like to not march in step with the rest of your battalion. It's a military word. And there are really two ways that you can not stay in lockstep with the rest of your battalion. It's stopping while the rest keep marching or marching in a different direction while the rest keep marching. And you can see those two words, idle, stopping, and disruptive, going the wrong way. God says we are to warn people who are like that. It's one of the reasons that we have a membership commitment. Not because we're saved by following some rules, but because as a congregation, we don't want to be idle. We want to warn those who think that coming here to just consume Christian content is not a God-pleasing life. To say that what it means to be a Christian is to walk, march in step with one another. To go toward a goal of growth in God's word. And we also warn those who would disrupt, who would want their way above all else rather than the good of others. We say this is not how God would have us live. We are here to serve one another, like he says, to encourage the disheartened, to help the weak, and to be patient with everyone, to make sure that nobody pays back wrong or throng, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So God says that while we wait, we care about the work of the church and those who enact it. Because what is at the center is God's word. And that is what defines our relationships, our conflicts, and our resolutions. So finally, our worship. As we wait for Jesus, we care about how we work, our workers, and finally how we worship. Paul starts by saying, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Three imperative commands. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. God says this is his will for you, which is important tangentially to talk about because many people have an idea like, I want to know God's will for my life. And what they want is like some really specific, narrow, like I'm supposed to live in this city and marry this person and do this job and make this decision. It's just narcissism. Like they just want a special story for themselves. God's will is very clear right here. This is God's will. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. That's all he's asking you to do. Which should make you terrified because none of us are doing this, right? Like how often are we joyful? Barely at all. Like how often are we praying? Maybe when I have time, like giving thanks in all circumstances, maybe when things are going well, but not in some circumstances. This is God's will for you and we're all failing, which should lead us back to Jesus. To say that I'm not saved because I rejoice all the time or because I am continually thankful or because I make prayer a priority, but because Christ has died for me, whether I am awake or asleep. And so now what I can do is I can live this way in the freedom of knowing that I don't have to. I can be joyful because I know that all things are going to work out for my good. I can be thankful because I know that God will provide everything that I need. I can pray continually because God has promised he will make things work for me. I can simply ask him to do it. He says, this is worship. Which is different than what we think of worship. We think worship is what we're doing right now, but God says, no, worship is all the time. It is an acknowledgement of who Jesus is for my life. He then continues by saying, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. 
Again, people want to make a big deal about the Holy Spirit and all these magical things that they think he can do, despite the fact that the Bible says he doesn't really do those things. In fact, the main thing he does is work through God's word, which is why he says don't treat prophecies with contempt. Prophecy is to speak God's word. He says don't stop hearing God's word. Don't stop opening the door for the Spirit to work through his word in your heart. When someone preaches you the word, hear that, and then think, does it line up with God's word? Like, are they saying what the scripture says? This is why, by the way, we give you Bibles in the back while we print the text on the notes, because it's not my opinion. I want you to look at the text and figure out, am I saying what that says? That's more important than anything. Do not quench the work of the Spirit, but look to the scriptures and be able to test them to hold on to what is good. And so then Paul finally prays for us at the end of this text and says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So as Paul finishes this section and says that as we wait for Jesus, we care about being awake and alive to the world, to hearing God's word from those who have been called to preach it to us and coming back to it and studying it so that we can rejoice, we can pray, and we can give thanks. We understand it all is going to happen because of Jesus. I'm not going to leave you with the message that you need to go out and figure out how to do all these things in your life. What does he say? He says that God himself will sanctify you through and through. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. The message of the gospel is that Christ will do it for you. If you think you're pretty good, if you think you're pulling it off, you will hate that message. But if you realize you've messed up, if you realize you're not living up, if you feel the pressure of the the expectations you put on yourself or the culture puts on you or your parents put on you, then you will hear it as good news that God has saved you, that God has given you his righteousness, that God has promised you eternity and that he's going to make everything sad come untrue when he comes. The king shall come. Let's pray for that. Amen. Jesus, thank you for this message that you are going to come and to make all things new. As we wait, give us the patience and love for our neighbor that you show us in the scripture. Help us to make your word a priority both here on Sunday and throughout our week. Help us to rejoice always, to pray continually, and to give thanks in all circumstances because you have set us free to do so. We ask these things in your name. Amen.